Welcome to an audio stream from San Marino Community Church, featuring our own pastoral staff and various guest speakers. I'm so glad to see you. It's good to be together. I remember one Christmas when I was about 11 and my sister was 12, Charlotte, being the really hip and cool one out of the family, the preteen, she, what she wanted more than anything for Christmas was a, a little black transistor radio. And this wasn't any just transistor radio. This was an AM-FM transistor radio. <laughs> Not only was it AM-FM transistor radio, if you pulled out the, the antenna to its full extension, you could get Mexicali and Yuma on the radio. It was, this was big time. I, on the other hand, in my lifelong journey to want to be cool, I wanted nothing more than a pair of white go-go boots like Cam Nelson on the television show Shindig. So Christmas morning came and my sister and I came out and there was a present for each of us under the tree. And they were both wrapped in a shoebox. So we rushed to the, the tree, and I picked up mine and opened mine first. And there, oh, in little pristine tissue were these white go-go boots. My dream had come true. My sister saw what I had opened up, took her shoebox, and threw it across the room. And she yelled as loud as she could, I didn't want boots. I wanted a black transistor AM, FM radio with an extension antenna that could pick up Yuma and Mexicali. And then she sat down and cried. Now, to be honest, I was always the little devil in my family. And my sister, was, who, was, who still is, kind, patient, wise, angelic. So to see her have this major and unexpected meltdown... <coughs> It gave me the warmest feeling <laughs> of self-righteous satisfaction. I'll be honest with you. Well, what she didn't know was that my mom had wrapped her tra black transistor radio up in a shoebox. Well, she's never lived that down. Never. We still talk about that. You know, I think that we've all known disappointment in our life. And sometimes it's because we don't get what we wanted. And sometimes it's because it didn't come wrapped up the way we expected. This morning when we talk about th this day, it's a lot like that. It's come to, I've come to realize that the people really weren't fickle. The day and the person just wasn't wrapped up in the package that they expected. It's interesting because Christians throughout the centuries have asked, pleaded, and begged God to come back and make everything right. Well, there's two reasons why I think that is pretty insane thinking. One, God already did that. God did, in fact, come and right the world and provided everything that we needed in coming to live as free, forgiven people, full of abundance and grace, and then told us, Go and share that. Second, if God came back again today to all those people who are begging God to come back, 
we would have a lot of explaining to do. So that's why I think it's a little bit insane for us to beg God for that. And I understand that this desire springs out of an understandable uh, cry and need to end suffering and uh, poverty and warfare and abuse and violence. I know it comes from that heart. But the fact remains that we are constantly wanting God to take care of things without putting any skin in the game ourselves. I wonder if Jesus on that first Palm Sunday very intentionally proclaimed in this prophetic act that such is not the way that God brings healing to us. God's rule comes not by force, but God's rule comes humbly and gently enthroned on the back of a beast of burden. Listen to the word of the Lord from Mark 11. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say this, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, what are you doing untying that colt? They told them what Jesus had said and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. These words and this act was a fulfillment of prophecy. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. This narrative uh, is often entitled the triumphant entry of Jesus to Jerusalem. And personally, I'm not too sure that that's a very accurate or, or really good description of what this event was all about. So what was going on at this time? For one thing, it's the time of Passover. So in Jerusalem, it was a crazy madhouse. All the pilgrims are coming to Jerusalem, and then tourists from all over the Roman Empire are coming to Jerusalem because of things that were happening. They, they were tourists that were going to the Wailing Wall. They were seeing everything that was happening, the pageantry, because this was also the time of the year when the governor, Pilate, who spent most of his time at his villa at the seashore of the Mediterranean, he also would make his way up to Jerusalem. And he didn't come because he was invested in the holy days. He came because it was his job. He was in charge of crowd control. Jesus was neither the first nor the last to raise the messianic hope of the pilgrims who came. There were others who had come and entered into Jerusalem to wave palming and shouting, and it always ended up in insurrection. It always ended up in a big riot. 
Simon of Maccabees had, had come in 141 BC to the shout of Hosanna, Hosanna, and it ended up being uh, guerrilla warfare. And so uh, the Roman Empire had learned their lesson, and now they, sent, they were sure to be on the premises at the time because it was always something that needed the um, military power to break up and to restore order. And then there's also this thought that, after all, Passover is the Jewish celebration of liberation from an unjust and cruel domination system of Egypt and the pharaohs. And I don't know, I don't think you have to be a really, uh, you know, a really intelligent pastor or rabbi to be able to preach a sermon at any, at any synagogue about the parallels between today and the times in Egypt. So people's blood was up and boiling. So Jesus moves from Galilee, knowing all of this. This is something well known through, the, through all of uh, Jewishdom. Knowing this, goes from Galilee into Jerusalem and cried over it before he went in. And everybody warned him, don't go, don't go, because they could just see the storm brewing and they could just see what the possibilities might be. But Jesus moves with intention towards Jerusalem, which is the center of Jewish power and commerce. It's, it's the center of their historic identity, and it's the center of their religious meaning, very much like today. This story relates to me one of the wildest and most explosive acts of Jesus' ministries and the most political acts of Jesus' ministries with great intention. So here's, here's what I want you to see, these parallels of what is happening. When the governor Pilate comes into Jerusalem, he enters from the front of the west gate. And when he comes in, he comes in with all the pomp and circumstance that the Roman Empire could bring to bear. He brings in the foot soldiers, and he brings in the military who were goose-stepping to the Roman march. He leads a large group of cavalry and foot soldiers. Then he comes in riding an impressive stallion, which is the mount of warriors. Those going to war would ride horses. He is the highest representative of the Roman Empire for this area. Pilate represents the emperor himself. And the emperor himself was known to the people as son of God, Lord of all, and savior of the world. It was even printed on their coins, son of God. Then on the east side, from the east gate, Jesus and his friends enter the city. And Jesus has organized a few things of his own. Two disciples he sends to get the young colt that Jesus has arranged they use. While Pilate is riding in on his stallion, Jesus is riding in on a donkey. This is the animal that the princes of the time, those who were in nobility, chose to ride when they wished to signify peaceful intentions. So even the animal that Jesus was riding in on had proclaimed a message for those who were within watching or listening ear. So Jesus then is depicted as coming in peace, not coming to conquer, 
but to teach the ways of peace, not coming to resist the forces of his own destruction, but allowing them to gather their strength against him. In his triumphant entry, Jesus lampoons the powers that be and their pretensions to glory and dominion. And he enacts an alternative way of domination. Jesus doesn't come with pomp and wealth, but he comes as one identified with the poor. He doesn't come as a mighty warrior. He comes as one who humbly rejects domination. He doesn't come as a, 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 one who lords it over authority of everyone, but he comes as one who is vulnerable and refuses to rely on violence. All of this is the epitome of the opposite of what is happening across town from the West Gate. Well, the irony of this story is, of course, that uh, comes from the fact that the Jesus whom the crowds welcome with their shouts of Hosanna and who the crowds want to come into the city is not the Jesus they get. That's the irony of it. That's why I'm convinced that they weren't so much fickle as they were. They had false expectations of who was coming. And this kind of contradiction runs throughout Mark. You see it at every turn. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah and then just reams Jesus out for talking like, a, like one, the kind of Messiah he was. And, and in fact, to the point that Jesus has to say, stop, get behind me. You're trying to stop what I'm doing to, to Peter. Other disciples engage in the same misunderstanding when they want Jesus to grant them seats adjacent to his own in the kingdom that he was coming into. And Jesus has to say to them, you, you can't drink the cup I'm drinking. Can you? Will you? So this misunderstanding turns to rejection and the betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion of Jesus all flow out of that missed understanding of who Jesus was who this Jesus was riding in on this donkey. And within a week, a claim will turn into humiliation and mockery. And Palm Sunday leads us towards the growing shadow of Good Friday. So the honored Jesus is also the humiliated Jesus. They were waiting for a Messiah to save them. Isn't that strange? To save them from the Romans. We're waiting for a Messiah to save us for all time, for all eternity. Whether by armed insurrection or by divine intervention, something had to change. That was how they were feeling. But you see, this is what happens. It's like my sister in that transistor. Change was not, was not wrapped the way they wanted it to be wrapped. Change was wrapped differently than they expected. They didn't count on change coming in the form of love and forgiveness. They didn't count on God supplying believers with compassion as the weapon that would, would uh, rail against bigotry and prejudice and hatred. Here's the thing. 
Jesus did not come to change the world. Jesus came to change us. Jesus came to change us, to show us God's vision so that we could believe that the kingdom of God was at hand with the presence of Jesus. And we could change the world with the help of the Holy Spirit. That has never changed. We don't have to we don't have to cry out. In fact, we can't cry out for God to send someone to change the world because the world is in such poor condition. God sent someone, and that someone died for us, was resurrected, and gives us everything that we need to change the world. Everything that we need. Now, I know that that sounds like a heady order, and I know that sometimes we get so disappointed because we think, what can we do? And we hear all of that about, if only we're together, we can change things. People, listen to me. We are changing things. You're listening to the wrong radio station. You're watching the wrong newscast. You're not listening to what God is doing in the world today in the way of people who are coming together to fight against oppression, people who are bringing all their resources together in fish banks, in grocery sacks, in medical field, in every possible way, people who are dying on behalf of other people. You are not listening if you are hopeless. There is hope, and God is at work, and God has given us everything that we need to make a difference in this world. And all we have to ask ourselves is, God, what would you have us do here now? We're in this community. Why are we here? Why now? Why us? Those are the questions we must ask ourselves. And when we do, we will hear an answer come loud and strong. We'll hear it when we walk down the street because the kingdom of God exists on the streets of San Marino. Because the kingdom of God is not a place. It's a capacity. The kingdom of God is not one person. It is the family of God that is bound together. I'm convinced that if we could offer a word of hope in spite of everything that we see around us, we could proclaim that God is present not only in the city but in the country. We could proclaim that God understands well our desperate and, and hopes and our aspirations. I am convinced that the one true thing we can offer is a vision of a world that is the kingdom of God world, God on earth, here, now. Now, Jesus' kingdom doesn't magically undo the tragedy or the pain or the injustice of the world. But the kingdom of heaven is what binds us together as the human family. In the kingdom of heaven, we cry out for each other. We cry out for justice. In the kingdom of heaven, we hurt for each other. We mourn each other's losses. We celebrate each other's joys. In the kingdom of heaven, we pool our resources. We share. We make sure that there isn't a hungry person next to us. 
We have compassion. We have a voice. As kingdom people, we begin to live not only for ourselves, we begin to live for Christ's sake. And by living for Christ's sake, that means we are living and speaking out and being present for the sake of the poor and the vulnerable. There is no mystery to this of what it means to follow Jesus. There is no mystery. There is simply fear. I asked somebody the other day, they were talking to me about what, what, they, wanted, what they thought God wanted for them in their life. And they said, I know seven or eight things, and, and I'm just praying that God will show me what God wants. And I suggested to them, you know, I wonder if you stopped praying about for God to show you because you've already got seven or eight things. So you already know what God wants for you. Maybe you should start praying for the courage to do it. And I wonder, could that not be our prayer as well? We each know what we must do. Could we not begin to pray for the courage to do it? As a church, could we stop searching for what we need to do and just start praying for the courage to do what we need to do? Isn't that remarkable? Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it too much to comprehend? And yet it sits before us. The kingdom does exist. I know it does. You know it does. We see it every day. We feel it giving birth inside of us and springing up. And I have to tell you from that little devil child that I was, I am shocked every time I have a kind thought. <laughs> and I am shocked every time I do a kindness. And I'm like, whoa, where did that come from? That comes from this master Jesus that we follow. The kingdom exists. It exists in our streets. It exists in L.A. It exists in our country. It exists in the world. Every nook and cranny, every darkness, every light, the kingdom exists. It exists on the cross of a condemned man. The kingdom exists because God exists. And we have witnessed the depth of God's love for the world in the daring and audacious, radical act of Jesus Christ as he rode in from the east on that donkey. He rode in facing his death, but he also rode in confident of his resurrection. Let's go to God in prayer. We thank you, God, that you have given us all that we need. And we simply pray that we might have the courage to do that which you are calling us to do, to be your kingdom people, to recognize the capacity that you have loved us into, to make a difference, not only that, in the, but to transform the world. Certainly the part of the world that we live in. And so we lift this day up to you, recognizing that while we celebrate your entrance into Jerusalem, we mourn your death on Friday, and we are resurrected with you on Easter Slow us down this week, O oh God, that we might keep pace with you and hear you and listen and be changed. 
We pray all of these things in the name of our wonderful Savior, Jesus. Amen.